Welcome to Building the Future. I'm your host, Kevin Hark. You can check out new episodes of the show every Tuesday and Thursday at 2 p.m. If you missed an episode or want to get more information about the show, please visit buildingthefutureshow.com. Season 1 of the TV version of Building the Future is now streaming online at buildingthefutureshow.com. Welcome back to the show. Today we have Brody Jackson, co-founder and managing partner of Kairos Ventures. Brody, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. Yeah, I'm excited to have you on the show. We, we actually got to meet in person in February when I was uh, down in Florida and we were at the Startup Expo uh, conference. And so we just kind of happened to, well, you were on a bunch of panels and um, you were speaking at the conference and then we kind of um, ran into each other at the networking event and we got chatting and I thought, wow, I should have her on the show. You guys are doing some really cool and interesting stuff and the companies you are investing in are kind of throughout the States and even up into Canada and you just had a recent uh, acquisition. So you guys are doing some exciting stuff. Yeah, well, we, we certainly like to think so. And, and, and we do, like you said, we have things across the U.S. and in Canada, but you know, we are really excited about what's happening in the Southeast and here in Florida. But, you know, we're very excited about the market in in Nashville and Austin and Atlanta and and you know, we think that the southeast has you know a really great tech scene going on right now sure but maybe before we kind of get into uh, Kairos Ventures let's get to know you a little bit better and kind of cover your background and where you grew up yeah absolutely so I am actually from the Midwest I'm a Missouri girl okay grew up on a farm in the middle of nowhere nice. but knew that I wanted to be in finance, as little as that actually meant to me at the time. It was just a big category, and that's what I wanted to do. So it felt like New York was the place that I needed to go to make that happen. Sure. I went to Lehigh University for my undergraduate work. And, and again, I, there wasn't necessarily this huge drive that that was the, necessarily the right school, but I knew that I needed to get closer to the East Coast. They had a great engineering school and a good business school. And so it was a really nice marriage where I did my business education, did the finance and accounting um, degree, but I was also able to spend a lot of time on in the engineering side of the school where I got a computer science minor and actually, you know, um, learned all about coding and, and development, which is very applicable to what I do today. Sure. I, I think that's awesome. So what kind of got you passionate about or what made you decide like you really wanted to go into finance? You know, it was a little bit of, I feel like as a child, you only know a few sort of big job categories or at least where what I had exposure to sort of in a rural area. You, know, you had doctors, you had lawyers, you had professors, and you had sort of financial professionals where they were financial advisors or your bankers, et cetera. And I was just gravitated to the numbers behind it and then got interested in the idea that there was companies and stocks and, and you could really sort of dig in and understand the company and their business and how they were going to grow. And I was just very gravitated to that. And so I knew that in the broadest sense, that was finance and so that's really what piqued my interest. Interesting. And is there something that kind of got you interested in computer science and kind of technology um, growing up? Or what made you kind of go into, or like minor in computer science? 
Sure. So, you know, probably dating myself a little bit, but, you know, I, I would go back to the floppy disk days where totally. you, know, you traded out, you know, the operating program for you know, the system operating program to then save your files. And, you know, so I was a pretty early adopter of being interested in software and the computers and really how it could change productivity. And I actually took my first coding um, class in high school. It was at that time taught through the vocational school where I went to high school. But I love just the logic to it in terms of you, know, you could build these algorithms and it, it just sort of suited my skill set from that math and logic point of view. Sure. So I really liked it. And then as I got into business, so I never went into, none of my jobs were necessarily um, you know, coding and development related. My first job was at, the, at Arthur Anderson. And, but within there, and I was doing um, the commercial-backed mortgage securities and asset-backed securities, the structuring work and due diligence behind it. So again, back to that finance, quantitative, not the number side of it. But the logic, sort of setting up those algorithms, the structuring of the CMBS securities is very similar to sort of the coding and programming you know I had done and the computer science side but yet I found that you know a lot of times the software things could be done more efficiently but the software wasn't there to automate processes and so actually when I was at Arthur Anderson I actually did an in-house software development project for them to really automate our due diligence process Interesting. for doing our commercial loan due diligence review. And it was something that was very cumbersome and was very manual and took all of this time. And we had our own in-house um, programmer in our group. And so we really worked together because I could understand I, you know, even though I could code, you know, that's not maybe my strongest suit, but I know, and now I at least understand the thought process. Totally. So I understand both the, the coding side and that person's point of view and, and their thought process, but I understood the business and the business needs. And so really being able to tie those two together, because that's where a lot of, a lot of times the software breaks down is when you don't necessarily have the, 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 the person who can translate the business needs into the language that the actual developer for them to really develop an end product that really makes that product fit. And, and so it's interesting to see because there's you know, just such a, been a, such a growth in the area of you know, how, how we're getting better at that, I think, over time. You brought up kind of a really interesting point there. I think I, I'm kind of a big believer that I think um, coding should be kind of taught in schools. Not saying you necessarily need to become a coder one day, but if you if you understand it and everything's going to kind of a software, internet, computer kind of world, if it's not there already, and it's only going to get worse, and if you can understand it, you could always even potentially use it to fall back on as a career, but you could, you know, obviously help companies going forward understand kind of like how to solve their problems with software. Yes, I mean, I think it's such a, even just the base of understanding logic, mm -hmm. you know, the con concepts of if then, if then else, and sort of loops of doing, you know, the, the small loops, and, and there's, there's small skills that will help, I feel like, our students, no matter what they do, because again, it's just how do I develop a, a 
game plan. You know, that's what a code is a lot of times. The algorithm is, okay, under all scenarios, so it, it could be any scenario coming in, how do I parse through it? What bucket does it fall in? You know, you're just setting up this very logical, rational process because it's sort of rules-based and, and sort of just helping children learn that thought process I think is going to be beneficial, you know, regardless of, of what they go into. No, I, I, yeah, like I said, I 100% agree with you. So you spent some time on Wall Street. You hung out there for a while. What made you kind of, um, you know, leave that world for um, Southern Florida and uh, Kairos Ventures? Sure. So, so I had, you know, been at Anderson, went somewhere else, went back to business school. And after business school, I was at Goldman Sachs. Spent a couple of years in their investment banking division and then really wanted to do something else, wanted something more. And I really spent some time using my network within the firm and, and trying to figure out because I loved the firm and wanted to stay there, of, well, how can I find that next opportunity but within the firm? Gotcha. And was also given the opportunity to, with another person, start a new investing business unit within the merchant bank. It was um, alternatives investing. So we were investing in private assets, and we were really given the mandate to help grow the product offering on the private side. So not the traditional private equity firm or the traditional real estate private equity fund, but we could do sort of anything else. And because the reality of it is those two businesses, as big as they were, were actually pretty narrow in what they could do. Because they were so big, they had to make very big investments. So investments that were, say, $500 million investments. Oh, wow. They had to have control. So they had to own more than 51%. You know, there was a lot of boxes that had to be checked off, but yet the firm saw a lot of interesting deals that didn't fit into those boxes. And so they said, we've got to figure out a way to, to expand what we're investing in. And so we were really given the opportunity to think about that. And so we grew the business to $3.5 billion in oh, wow. under management. And we had four different strategies. And you know, ultimately, though, that was you know, leading up into you know, 2009 and 2010. And you know, that when obviously there was massive cutbacks. So you know, at that point, I ended up leaving Goldman. But I had to figure out what I wanted to do next. Okay. And you know, nothing seemed quite as compelling as, you know, being, you know, one of, you know, two people. We grew to a team of eight, you know, at Goldman where we were doing everything and being very impactful. And I think kind of going back to what you said in terms of having that fallback skill set, what I understood on the technology side really was a great fallback for me at that time where you know, a lot of these financial firms had made investments but didn't really understand what they had invested in. And so I took sort of my technology skill set and worked with a number of different fund managers to really help them aggregate their information and analyze it. And so that was sort of, you know, I knew that wasn't my long-term plan, but just I wanted to kind of circle back to that idea of it can be a really great fallback skill set. And, you know, after doing that for, you know, a period of time, I said, I really want to get back to the investing side of the world. But now that I don't have the weight of Goldman Sachs behind me, what's my real competitive advantage going to be? I don't have this huge balance sheet. I don't have just the credibility that you pick up the phone and you're from Goldman Sachs and anyone's going to take your phone call. What 
what's going to give me edge that I'm going to be able to produce better returns for my investors? You know, what's the asset class? What's the strategy going to be? And I spent a lot of time thinking about it and then thinking about the right team who I wanted to sort of put together and you know, ultimately decided that early stage technology was the one space that I could really have a competitive advantage. And partly, you know, unlike say the public markets, you know, information is equally available. You know, that's how we've pushed the process. It's very hard to, you know, everyone knows essentially the same thing about the companies and their strategies. And, you know, it felt like that wasn't going to be my space to have a, a real competitive advantage. You know, when you get into later stage private equity, the deals are very competitive. There's only one winner of a deal at the end of the day, and it's the person that was willing to pay the very um, highest price. And a lot of that becomes a financial engineering game. So, you know, that's not really why I want to play, where you start coming down the scale to the earlier stage deals, and the dynamic is very different. One, we actually have access to confidential, confidential information. We are able to track our companies over a very long period of time. We're able to talk to their suppliers, to their customers. You know, everyone is part of the process and really get a, a deep understanding of the business, the management team, the industry, the market, and what, and then most importantly for us, what can we do with it? Where, where's our value add? very important for us to be able to have an impact on the company and you know where the right strategic introduction can be game changing for an early stage company and and so really felt like early stage technology was a place that I could have a real competitive advantage and and so that's um, and then came to Florida largely because I felt like there was something special happening in the southeast and Miami has you know has really come a long way even um, since I've been down here since the beginning of 2012 they've really come along the curve of, of being a real you know, having an ecosystem and being a tech hub and really wanted to be able to be part of that and you know, be there from the beginning and see the whole process. And it's been really great to be here. You know, people don't think of Florida. You know, it's actually one of the things I spend a lot of time talking to our um, government leaders here that the image isn't out there. People think of Florida as retirement and tourism and leisure, but the reality of it is there's a really great business community here, and those of us that are here know it, but most people outside of it don't, and, and don't realize that it's a, it's a really great place that you can start a business. It's pretty collaborative. People are willing to, to network and make introductions, and um, it's actually been a really great place. I can also get most places across the U.S. As you mentioned earlier, we are not a, a Florida-focused or Southeast-focused firm by any means. We typically say that we cover east of the Mississippi. We feel like that is um, a really great area for us to be able to be very proactive in the market and exploring those companies. No, I, I think that's awesome. And I, I think um, that's kind of what really kind of stuck out um, when we first talked about kind of what you guys do is, yeah, you kind of have an area, obviously, that you try to cover, but you're willing to kind of go outside that area. And I also love the fact that, you know, you're in a spot that's 
for lack of a better term, kind of like an up-and-coming kind of tech hub, right? And I think there's a lot across the nation um, now and that you don't need to be in Silicon Valley to build a successful company. And, um, you know, there's firms like your firm that are willing to, to fund and support and, you know, basically develop these companies outside the valley, right? And I think it's super important to, to stress that and promote that and, and get the word out. And something that you kind of alluded to that kind of got me thinking, um, yeah, maybe a lot of people do uh, retire in, in Florida, for example, but usually if you can retire, you probably did well in, in business or in a career and you might be able to find a, a lot of like mentors or maybe people that are willing to invest as well just because, well... Absolutely. It's actually it's such a good point and it's actually a, a big part of even us being down here because that's a, a big investor base for us in terms sure. of our firm and who's investing with us because a lot of times we don't always recommend say that successful business person to go out and do this on their own um, because this is what, this is our day job and we do it every day, sure. but it's, it's evolved to this really great um, aspect to our business where some of our sort of key investors that have amazing networks have built businesses. They don't want to be full time, but sure. they love to give some advice or make an introduction where they can and there is a huge um, amount of those people who spend, you know, at least six months of the year here in Florida. A lot of people retire here, and they are wonderful mentors and advisors and investors to companies. So I, it's it's been something that we've seen a lot in our own business, and we we see it a lot in the market here. No, I I think that's awesome. So maybe let's kind of get. Um, Let's talk kind of more exactly what Kairos is. I know it's like a venture capital firm, but for, for people that don't really know what that means, do you maybe want to kind of give a quick intro to the company, the kind of philosophy and exactly kind of what you guys do and, and even how to you guys decide or how to get people should pitch to you guys? Sure. So we are an early stage technology company. Okay. We invest in both hardware and software. And so when we say hardware, we're, we mean anything that's a physical product. So we have, you know, very far on one end of the spectrum is a consumer product, wine and spirits portfolio company. Gotcha. The very opposite end of our hardware spectrum is an ultra capacitor company that is very hard and R&D heavy science company that will be a component into any number of electronic devices. So anywhere on that spectrum of anything that's a physical product and physical device, that's what we consider hardware. And not all venture capital firms will invest in hardware companies. We, we definitely do. We have a real expertise in hardware and understand it. And so it's not 100% of our focus, but I would say typically, you know, 20 to 40% of our investments will be in hardware companies. The opposite side of that is software, anything that's in the, the software space. And we look typically a little bit more on the enterprise side. We really like hospitality um, SAS, we have one of our Canadian companies is a, a hospitality um, to the hotel space. Our company that was recently acquired um, really serviced the restaurant and nightlife space. 
And um, so we, we like hospitality. It's an industry we know. And then, you know, we also really like fintech, and we have secure cybersecurity, fintech. Those are sort of some – and life sciences. And, and we're not doing biotech, but we think we really like the overlap of, say, our hardware knowledge and life sciences, so medical device or drug delivery. or You know, those are the types of things where we really want to marry our industry expertise. You know, one of the ways that we look at it, there are platform technologies. So some people will say, well, we were looking for investments in mobile. Well, we view mobile as just a platform technology. Sure. The idea of augmented reality and virtual reality, those are more platform technologies that are going to impact every single business. And so we have to sort of look at industry verticals that we understand and then think about changes in platform technologies and how, what's that intersection? How, what, how, what's the impact going to be? And that's how we always think about the world as we're looking at trends. You know, we're very top down and bottoms up. So we have, you know, we're sort of looking at those industry verticals and platform technologies and thinking about where are some types of investments we want to be out there looking for. But a lot of times you just don't know what it is and it's more bottoms up. Something comes across your desk and you say, okay, this looks really interesting. Now I've got to go get really smart in, in this. So, so we, we do both. Those are kind of the kind of broad industries we look at. And so the stage we invest at is earlier stage. So we will look at companies on the software side that typically have between a half a million and $2 million in revenue. Okay. And then our goal is to really help them sort of grow to that next step. On the hardware side, we will consider investments that are pre-revenue because those are typically um, very R&D intensive. They've you know, maybe got their, um, their IP at that point, their patents, et cetera. So there can be um, – we will consider pre-revenue on the hardware side. Okay. But not software then? or it, it, Not I, software. Software okay. needs to have revenue. And like I said, typically between half a million and sure. two million. There just needs to be a, there's sort of a higher barrier to entry in terms of the hurdle of proving that market concept and really showing some market traction. So we don't really invest in sort of concept stage. It's got to be, you know, so typically a company has, maybe had some, you know, friends and family capital come in, maybe even a little bit of seed or angel capital before we come in. And, and the terminology for whether it's a seed round or a series A is a little bit all over the place. Sure. But, you know, we like to think that, you know, typically our companies are valued on, as a total company of $10 million or less when we invest with them. Got you. But we are, and, and maybe just to give people some color on venture in general, and, and people will talk a little bit about an East Coast mentality and a West Coast mentality, and yeah, I think you brought up that idea that there are great places to grow technology companies besides Silicon Valley, and it is. It's a very different culture there. I think you know, they're looking at big, big ideas, and in fact, I was at eMERGE, which is a great conference we have in Miami, and there was someone from the Facebook team who you know, obviously is a hugely successful company, and she was talking about when they look at from an angel investing point of view, wanting not really caring about revenue. 
and where revenues were coming from and how they were going to grow revenues. It was just how are you going to think big? How are you going to make your business bigger, grow users or whatever the metric is? And then you can always figure out how to make money later. And I think that that's very much that Silicon Valley mindset. And we are completely the opposite. We are 100% revenue model driven. I need to understand how you make money, who's going to pay you for the service. People talk a lot right now about big data. Okay, it's the same idea. I'm going to get a bunch of users, then I'll figure out how to make money off of them. I'm going to get a bunch of data, then I'll figure out how to make money off of it. Well, it doesn't for us, it doesn't really work that way. If you haven't figured out yourself already who's going to buy that data, why it's valuable for them, why, how you're getting it that's different than someone else can, you know, we really want to understand the business that we're investing in and how it's going to make money, you know, which we think is – we also say what we do is a little more like private equity investing. They just happen to be early stage technology companies, but our mindset in terms of we're not looking for one home run and a bunch of zeros. We're we're looking for a smaller portfolio of companies that we're going to be very hands-on with them. We're going to be working with the management teams. We're going to help them execute a strategy that's fairly well-defined today and we don't need to grow it to a billion-dollar company because we're investing in companies that are worth $10 million or less. And most technology merger and acquisition activity, you know, most companies don't go public. Most of them get acquired by a strategic company in the same space or by another private equity company. And the valuations, they're typically purchased at $100 million or less. Sure. And so that's where we're looking to invest. We want to you know, be able to have a really great return you know, but if you a lot of the headlines that everyone's hearing today in the news are about these unicorns and totally. these companies that are raising hundreds of millions of dollars at billion dollar valuations, and it's really hard to create great returns on your capital at that stage. It's just it's very different than what we're doing. No, it I it makes a lot of sense. Like the the whole valley thing to me, I always joke that it's kind of like hot potato where it doesn't really matter about the company. It's about like if you have the hot potato right now and you can convince other people and you just don't want to be caught with it when it's not hot anymore and it doesn't even really matter what the company is. And I I love the fact that you guys are investing in like real businesses and real ideas um, because that's basically how business works, right? And I think we forget about that in the startup space so much of the time and so many people... um, just they're like, well, I'll figure out how to make money later. It's like, well, no, that doesn't really work like that, especially if you're building like a physical store. Like if you can't just like put out a physical store and give everything away and then figure it out one day, like it just doesn't work like that. But it's weird how online it seems to, that's totally normal in like certain parts of the world. Yes. (laughs) And it's amazing because also that's even the concept of, you know, someone thinks, okay, I, I will not make any money, but that's an, it takes an enormous amount of capital to make that happen because there are, you know, a physical location or an office space and there's people, there's real costs that yep. have to, someone has to finance that. And, but even with companies that are making money, they have revenue, but they're just not profitable because they're just growing, growing, and growing. And there's an idea that you could run your company with the goal of I'm going to raise my next round. 
the, the idea of I, I'm just growing top line because that's going to get me a better valuation when I raise my next round and I'm going to be able to raise more money. But you may have been very unprofitable with those revenue versus the flip side. And we like to think about it is, you know, what about running your company so that hopefully you never have to raise another round. Totally. That if you are raising another round, it's because it's for growth and because you've shown an ability to take capital and make it efficient and make money with it that now someone wants to give you more money. And it, it, there are actually two very different thought processes of how to grow and run your business. And particularly as we saw some hiccups in the public markets that always, you know, ultimately trickles down yep. to the private markets and technology. And you, know, we sit down with all of our portfolio companies and said, you know, it may not be as easy to raise money. You need to always be thinking about how can I run my business to hopefully never have to raise money, be raising money as an option, not as a necessity. Totally. No, I, I think that's, that's actually really good advice. So do you want to maybe kind of cover um, some of or all the companies that um, you guys have invested in that you're, you're currently working with? Sure, I, I would love to. Um, you know, one of our companies that, you know, it's a consumer device or a consumer product. So, you know, it, it's one that people can resonate with and understand. The company is called Sculpt, okay. like you would sculpt your body. And their product is called the Chisel. Okay. And it was actually developed out of Harvard Medical School as a medical device. Interesting. So this is you know, real you know, kind of R&D heavy. It was developed by the um, chair of the neuromuscular um, um, science area at Harvard. And his specialty was, is ALS. And oh, wow. so this product was used by drug companies in their... Um, clinical trials for their ALS drugs to help measure whether their drugs were working because it measures muscle quality. So the muscle fiber strength, its density per its weight, and also the composition. So body, you know, fat versus muscle in individual muscle groups. So not as you as a whole, but your biceps versus your triceps or your quads versus your hamstrings, et cetera. And yeah, this was a very sophisticated device, but ALS is a pretty small market. And so they realized, well, what if we were to simplify the device a little bit? Would we get a reading that was acceptable for a consumer application? And could we make it at a price point that would be affordable? And so he, um, they, the scientists teamed up with an MIT engineer, and they started the consumer side of it. And so the idea is now there's this consumer device called the Chisel that you know, individuals can now purchase. It, it then has a, an app on your phone that will then show you a whole map of your body in terms of your um, muscle quality and your body fat percentage on individual muscle groups, which is wow. really interesting because it shows you imbalances, which I think is really interesting. I mean, we all like to see how we're doing and how we're performing, and it gives you an overall measurement as well. But when you start looking at the individual data, you now start, I know as my personal experience with it, I start thinking 
more holistically of, wow, I guess I don't do anything for my calves or, you know, my, my hamstrings are not as strong as my quads and that can, that can lead to a knee injury. And, you know, what they're doing is they're also working with athletes and you realize that a football player's body is going to be very different, should be very different than a tennis player or a cyclist, et cetera. Right. So it's really interesting in terms of, you know, helping you sort of set out your training goals, measure your progress. You know, as part of their app, they, you know, can, can recommend based on, you know, your, your age and demographic and your activity level and your goals, various activity, you know, exercise plans that can work for you. So it's very exciting. We are, they have been selling online through a, a number of different channels and they will, they're just going to be launching in brick and mortar retail this summer, which we are very excited about. That's awesome. So, so that is one, and then the medical device side of that business is still very healthy and, and we're going to expand that as well. You know, I think the other, you know, I'll skip on to our other consumer product because I always feel like those are something that people can really resonate with. Grain and Barrel is a craft spirits company. And if everybody knows about craft beers, and that's had you know, such a huge growth um, span in our country and a resurgence, and, and people really love it. And we're seeing that with the craft spirits as well. And the idea of, I want to buy local, and there's this story behind it, and more small batch producers, and that's really happening on the spirit side as well. And so we invested in a local company based, um, they're based in Charleston, actually, okay. where their distillery is. And they have a, a few things in their portfolio, um, but one which is sort of applicable to our area, they have a vodka. It's General Dixie Vodka. And, you know, it's sort of the, you know, it's local, sort of southern, have it in your Bloody Marys and, you know, you're the mint juleps type of, you know, vodka. And, you know, we're really excited about how that's doing. The, the owner, you know, is really great at branding and packaging. And, you know, the idea is to sort of compete with Tito's, which, you know, obviously I think has, you know, done so well in terms of growing in that space. But, you know, they also have um, a whiskey brand and um, always get some, some eyebrows, but it's Chicken Cock Whiskey. is a heritage brand okay it was actually the house brand of whiskey at the cotton club in new york during prohibition oh very cool um, was from kentucky and so he are the founder actually brought that brand back and sort of you tries to sort of then make it current for today so let's take some of the the old a nod back to the old bottles and packaging and, and brand concept, but make it current for today. And, and that's what's really sort of interesting and exciting. It's sort of, you know, bringing kind of the new craft, kind of bringing some of the old brands and making them current again. And, and so that's a company where we're very excited about. Sure. No, that's awesome. I, I love that kind of, I love how you guys are doing stuff in a bunch of different spaces. I, I think it keeps it probably exciting for you guys as well, but it's it's cool that you guys are you're kind of dabbling in in a bunch of different areas. Yes, you know, and, and then things get a little more technical on on some of the other end of the spectrum. You, one of our companies called SoCure, it's a financial technology company, and and they're in identity verification and fraud prevention. Okay, and interesting. you know, I think a lot of us can relate to sort of the e-commerce point of view, but this is really used for um, credit card issuing banks 
for remittance companies. So that's like the Western unions, uh, MoneyGram right. of the world, or lenders. At the time that someone comes in to either open an account or do an initial transaction, it's part of their what's called the industry KYC or know your customer. And as part of that process, if someone's doing it online, they have less information. It's not someone coming in and, and you see them face to face and you see their driver's license. You know, it's a it's a challenge in the industry of how does the banking world keep up with the changes in technology to service what customers want, but to still um, do what they need to do from a security and compliance point of view. And so today, banks typically are using the three credit bureaus and some other data providers that are using sort of traditional offline data sources, databases that have been aggregated on people. But if we think about it, there's a lot of millennials or people that are not American who have very thin files. They don't have this huge history piling up on them. And so it's a lot harder. It's a big challenge for the banks to sort of verify. And so this product takes, it doesn't say don't replace what you're doing today, but let's add to it all of the data that we can be gathering that's online Interesting. and to verify someone. And the best way to think about it is, you know, I could set up a fake, someone could set up a fake Brody Jackson email account sure. and even a face, fake Facebook account, but they couldn't age it. They couldn't have the, right. all the connections they should have of where I went to high school and where I went to college and every job I've had. You know, it's very, it's actually hard to build that case. And so that just gives you, there's, Technology is obviously much more sophisticated than that in terms of what they're doing, but I think it helps you know an average person understand, okay, that's the type of thing that they're able to uncover and really realize and, and highlight um, that to the bank. We don't think that this person is who they say they are. You should flag them. And, and in fact, actually, the opposite happens quite a bit. As someone that might get flagged out of the system now you can sort of verify and get more comfort with who this person is, and actually the banks are able to do more business that way. So it's it's really significantly reducing fraud, but it's also increasing the total amount of business that they're able to do. And and so they're doing a, a fantastic job. We're we're very excited about what they're able to do as well. Very cool. Um, and okay, keep going. Sorry. Should I keep going? Yeah, sure. Why not? <laughs> So, you know, um, we have another company called Paper Battery, and Paper Battery is actually not a battery company at all. So okay. it's a little bit of a, a misnomer. It's actually an ultra capacitor. And okay. you know, most people won't necessarily understand what an ultra capacitor is versus a battery. But a, a lithium ion battery, everyone sort of understands their pain point in terms of their cell phones and tablets, et cetera, with their very short battery life. But what happens is anytime you – batteries are really good at holding big stores of power, but they're not good at dispelling it very quickly for big surges of power. So anytime you're actually speaking on the phone and downloading data, it's a big strain on the battery, and the battery becomes sort of inefficient. And a battery cannot recharge. It can only recharge, say, a 1,000 times. Then your battery is just completely dead. We've all experienced that. At a sure. certain point, you have your phone, your battery just is dead. Where an ultracapacitor is the exact opposite. So it can't hold a lot of power, but it's really good at dispelling large amounts of power quickly and recharging really quickly. And it can be recharged, you know, 100,000 times. Oh, so very different dynamic. And so, you know, they have a product that pairs an ultracapacitor together with a small lithium-ion battery. And it's 
really great for, say, the Internet of Things world. So this, you know, wireless sensors, et cetera. Actually, the first product application is in the remote server farm market. Oh, makes Again, a lot of sense. not super sexy and interesting, but it's a huge, huge market. Yeah, and solves and, a real problem. And then excuse me? And solves a real problem. Exactly. Yeah. And, and then, you know, but it's solving a real problem of, of battery life. And, and we all sort of, you know, understand that pain point. And, and so the idea that their, pro, their technology is, it's very thin, it's flexible, and it increases battery life at an actually reduced cost to the, the manufacturer. So it's, it's say the Apple, Samsung's, you know, LG's, you know, of the world that might buy this type of a product, you know, an individual person isn't going to buy it, but it, it, it actually, you know, is able to improve what they can do from their form factor and improve their battery life and efficiency at a, actually a reduced cost for them. Sure. No, that's awesome. And do you want to cover a couple more or? Sure. So, you know, um, one of our more recent investments is in a company called Guest Driven. Okay. And, you know, again, even though their their customer is on the hotel side of the world, it's something that I think, you know, a consumer can really understand. Because today what's happened is the online travel agencies, which are the Expedias, the Hotel Tonight, the TripAdvisors, you know, they – that's how most people go and discover where they're going to stay, do the discovery process, finding and making the reservations, et cetera. Then they actually, you know, go and, and stay at the Starwood, Marriott, et cetera, hotel. But the problem is there's sort of now a breakdown in the hotel's ability to have a real customer relationship because the information is not very well shared or very limited information is shared between the Expedias and TripAdvisors of the world and the actual hotel property themselves. They don't get your actual email address most of the time. Oh, and yet there's sort of then a breakdown in the level of service and communication that hotel property can have. And so guest-driven is, is sort of meant to be in between and really help facilitate the guest inner engagement both before their stay, during their stay, and after their stay. And from the, the consumer's point of view, they're just engaging with the hotel. You know, it's not, they don't have a guest-driven app on their phone. You know, it, it, they just get their, their email, from, uh, email or a text message from the actual hotel property before and, and maybe given options of would you like to upgrade your room or would you okay. like an early check-in or an early check-out. It's ways to actually, you know, try to, one, just increase engagement, but to sort of upsell because now you could take a, a suite, which, you know, if it's not rented out to, you know, today's check-in and if you don't sell it, it's, it's sort of just unused inventory. So the idea of, okay, well, maybe I can offer that at, you know, it'd normally be $100 more per night, but I'll offer it at $40 more per night. If the person upgrades, then they can take that base room and put it back out on Expedia and try to you know, sell that room out that way. Oh, so it's a better way. You know, it helps them um, manage their inventory, increase revenue, and, and just, again, it helps restore that communication with their actual customer. And, and that's really where, where they're going. Sure. No, I, I think that's awesome. And it, it sounds like that's something that's much kind of needed, right, uh, in, in that space. Yes. And it, it is, and, and then it's, um, you know, kind of interesting because I, what really made me think about it in, in that light was um, Reserve, and they just bought our company, 
dash and that so this is all in the restaurant space and you know, if you think about it, there's people that do different parts of the restaurant space. So open tables doing your table management. Yep. No one's doing the customer relationships management side of it. Dash was in the payment space. And and actually as part of our working with Dash, we said that they needed to do more than just being a payments company. You we were pushing them to expand into the 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 customer relationship management side of it, and they actually had built in a, a whole analytics platform, which you know to be part of that. And then there's the review side of the world, which is Yelp, and sure. you know there's a lot of people that don't like both OpenTable and Yelp, and you know, but yet that's sort of entrenched. But no one's really bringing all of those pieces together, and when they don't sync up very well, like we just talked about in the hotel space, it it just hurts the overall experience for the consumer. And so Reserve is really looking at it of, you know, how do we complete that circle? Because that's going to really help us get the consumer and have a really great experience for both the consumers and the restaurants. And, you know, everyone sort of wins in the process if, if it works the way it's supposed to. Sure. No, I, I think that's awesome. And it makes a lot of sense. Um, but we're kind of coming to the end of the show. So maybe do you want to kind of, again, um, just kind of mention um, Kairos and where people can find you guys online and then any of the companies that you just mentioned are, is under the companies tab on your, on your website and people can get more information? Yes, absolutely. So our website is KairosVC, that's C-A-E-R-U-S-V-C.com. And on there, there's links to all of our current companies. There's also a link that if you're a company looking for funding, we have a link where you can submit your business plan through there. And also, we'll just tell you a little bit more about us, our team, and, sure. and our strategy. That's awesome. Well, Brody, I really appreciate you taking the, the time out of your uh, busy day to be on the show, and I look forward to kind of keeping in touch with you and you know, seeing the other companies that you guys invest in over uh, 2016 and beyond. Yes, we, we've got a, a very good pipeline right now. That's of, awesome. Of deals that we're looking at. So we're, we're pretty excited for the outlook for 2016. That's awesome. Well, uh, thanks again for doing this, and uh, we'll talk soon. Thank you so much. Okay, bye. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening. The music for the show is done by Electric Mantra. You can check them out at electricmantra.com. And keep them in the future.